All right, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. If you'll go ahead and turn to your Bibles. If you are visiting with us, Arden first, our mission here is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. And I'm thankful that I'm ordinary, but when the King of the universe moves inside of your heart, He makes you extraordinary, and you get to do great things for God. Amen? So, last week I missed you guys because we had snow day. How many of you enjoyed the snow? Anybody go sledding? Keep my hand up. I have four little kids, so we have to go sledding every time it snows. And we also have a tradition. Every time it snows, we make homemade hot chocolate. And that's our favorite. So the kids are always hoping for snow. So I don't know what we'll do during the spring and summertime. We'll have to come up with a new tradition. Maybe watermelon, maybe sweet tea. I don't know. We'll we'll think of something. So we're going to be in Ephesians 4. And we're transitioning into a new part of the book. The first three chapters of Ephesians deal with teaching, or also known as doctrine. And it talks about who you are in Christ. And then we pick up in chapter 4, which starts a new section of the book. And it's practical, how to live out who you are. So the first three chapters is doctrine. And the last three chapters is practical, how to apply the teaching. And the thing I love, I was telling the Sunday school class, the advantage of teaching through books of the Bible is it gives you the full balance because a lot of us are geared more towards just the solid, you know, you want the systematic theology and the teaching. And some of you are like, give me the life application. And as a Christian, you need both because it's hard to live it out if you don't know why you're living it out. It's hard to be a good husband or a good wife if you don't know who you are in Christ. So we've laid the first three chapters as foundation and today We pick up in chapter 4. And today's message, as you've probably gathered from the songs, is unity. And we're going to talk about how to have a worthy walk. And unity is a big theme, and the Christian life is a walk. It's not a sprint. Uh, If you look in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4.1 and 4.17 and ongoing, it talks about walking in unity, walking in purity in Ephesians 4.17, walking in harmony in 5.18, and walking in victory in chapter 6. So the Christian life is a walk. And I'm thankful for that because if it was a sprint, how many of us would be disqualified? We're not always the fastest and we're not always the quickest to learn things, but it's a steady walk. I heard someone once said that success in the Christian life is obedience in the same direction over a long period of time. I like that. Success in life is obedience in the same direction over a long period of time. And that, that's what it means to walk with Christ. So we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 1. If you'll read with me. If you don't have your Bibles, we have it on the screen. It says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And he tells us what that looks like in verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, and by the way, that word bearing is a nice way of saying putting up with one another. It, may, it means that it's not going to be easy, but it's, it's kind of a positive way to phrase that. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I love how it says endeavoring. It, it's something we've got to work on. Verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling. There's how many lords? Just one. There's one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let us pray. 
Father, this is a profound passage. And it talks about the beauty of the church. And it talks about how the church is uh, one body. And your desire is for that one body to be unified. So, Father, as we talk about a worthy walk and what that looks like, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and that we pray that we'd leave transformed. Lord, thank you. The Bible's not given just to give us information, but it's also given so that we can have transformation. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to talk about a worthy walk. And if you'll follow along on your listening guide in your bulletin, the first point is this. A worthy walk matches the excellency of your calling. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to which you are called. I love the word beseech. It's kind of like urge. Isn't it great as as Christians living under grace? It's not like you have to do it because you have to do it. It's because you want to do it. It's out of love. So that's why Paul is saying, I, I, want, I want to encourage you guys. This is really important. That God has called you with the high, holy calling. And we need to walk in such a way that models this calling. And the word walk, um, it, it's really hard, especially for younger people. If you're under 40 in here, um, you want stuff to happen yesterday. You guys know, you know your kids and grandkids that you can't wait for anything. So um, time seems to go by much slower when you're young. You guys remember that? And then, as people tell me, as you get older, it goes by much faster. Is that true? That's what everyone tells me. So, Paul gives the idea, listen, the Christian walk, it, it's signified as a race in other places. But it's not a sprint. It's a walk. It's a steady walk. And what this means is, it's day by day following Jesus. Day by day listening to his voice. And I notice it says, walk worthy of the calling to which you are called. The word worthy in the Greek is axios, and it sounds like the word axis, where we get our word. And basically it means it's in comparison to. So if you realize how amazing God is and how high and holy the calling, there should be a reciprocal action on your part. It should be equal to the calling. And how high is your calling? Well, it's a heavenly calling. It's a holy calling. So if you realize that, it should change the way you live your life. And that, that really encourages me that God has got this calling on each and every one of us. And if we realize the calling, it changes the way we live. The reason why many of us don't live differently is we don't realize how high and holy and heavenly the calling is. You guys ever heard the parable of the turkey and the eagle? Some of you have been talking to me about turkey season. How many of you are excited about turkey season? Anybody? There's like two guys in here excited. Okay. Several of you are talking to me about turkey season, so I thought I'd give you a parable. Well, according to this parable, the turkey and the eagle were the best of friends. They would fly together from place to place, and they, they would talk about life and, you know, what's the best food places, where's the best cafeterias to eat at, and they, they had the best time. So all of a sudden, as they were in mid-flight, the turkey gobbled, gobbled, and said, my, my belly is really, really hungry, hungry, and I need to land. So the eagle's like, okay, let's land. So they landed in this middle of a cow field. And they landed right next to Mr. Cow. And Mr. Cow was eating corn. And the turkey and the eagle looked at them, and their beaks were pointing at each other. And they're like, hmm. And the cow mooed and said, would you like to eat some corn? And the turkey's like, okay. And the eagle's like, well, 
before we eat, why are you offering your food so freely? Most of the animals don't give their food so freely. And the cow said, well, the reason why we do is Mr. Farmer, he gives us all the food we can eat. And he also gives, you see that barn over there? He gives us a free place to stay. And before the eagle could even process it, the turkey is gobbling at the corn and eating it up. And so the eagle starts eating. And they begin to discuss among themselves, you know, we work so hard for our food. We have to hunt or pray, and we have to build these briary, thorny nests. And the turkey suggested, why don't we just stay here with the cow? We can have all the food we could eat, and we don't have to build a nest anymore. We can live here in the barn. And Eagle said, well, you know, it sounds too good to be true to get something for nothing. It just doesn't sound right. So the eagle decided, you know what, you stay here with Mr. Farmer I don't want to give up my freedom of flying and actually enjoy hunting for my food. It's kind of a challenge to provide for myself. So he flew off, said his goodbyes to the turkey. And the turkey stayed around the cows, gobbling, eating all the corn, hanging out in the barn. And all was well until the turkey heard the farmer's wife saying, you know what, Thanksgiving's coming. And I would like nothing more than to have a roast turkey for Thanksgiving. And as soon as the turkey heard the farmer's wife, he's like, I've got to get out of here. But he had grown so fat and sassy, he could no longer fly. He could only flutter around the yard. And before he knew it, Thanksgiving Day was there and he was served on the farmer's table. How many of you ever heard that parable before? All right, it's a new parable. So the moral of the story is many of us are fluttering around in the gutters of this world when God has called us to fly like eagles. We are called with a high and holy calling. But so many of us take the course of least resistance, like the turkey. I'm going to do it the easy way. Do you know when we read Scripture, it says, walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. We were called to soar like eagles, not flutter around like turkeys. Amen? Number two, a worthy walk is characterized by a new character. Verse 2, it says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. So here's some characteristics of this holy calling, this, this walk we're to do, is it says we have a new character. And as we go through these characters, if you're like me, as, as I prepared this message, I had to ask God, forgive me almost on every point I'm about to, to bring to you. So if you're convicted, know that I was convicted first. Many of you have heard of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. They have the greatest romance. They're just one of those love stories in in history. And Prince Albert and Queen Victoria had gotten a little fight one day, as as some of you do with your spouses, right, occasionally. And Prince Albert stormed stormed off. He was so upset. Uh, Victoria had hurt his feelings, so he locked himself in one of the castle rooms. And Victoria started beating on his door. And he said, who is it? And she said, Queen Victoria, ruler of England. And he didn't let her in. And she started beating even harder. Who is it? Albert said, I am the ruler of the people of England, Queen Victoria. And he didn't let her in. And finally, he heard a gentle tap, a gentle knock. And Albert said, who is it? And she said, Albert, it's Vicky, your wife. And he let her in. So... Whenever we have pride, it tends to close doors up. But whenever we walk in humility, it tends to open up doors. If you notice that with your life, pride closes doors, actually slams them shut, and humility opens doors. 
So let's look at the first trait. He says, with all lowliness. Loneliness, loneliness is another word for humility. Paul is emphasizing the unity of the church here in this passage. And we know that humility is the thing that binds us together. So what would be the one thing that separates us? If humility unites us, what would divide us? Pride, right? Pride. And as we've mentioned, whenever you get on the ride of pride, it comes to a crashing halt. Whenever pride walks on the stage, God walks off the stage. So I came up with this saying, you might struggle with pride if, and it's in your handout. And as I went through each of these, you may say, ouch, and I said, ouch, first. But these are some things, do a little self-assessment. If, you, if, you, if you're like me and struggle with this in the past, uh, you can say, ouch, and God forgive me. The first one is this. You might struggle with pride if you always think about yourself more than anyone else. And before you say, that's not me, let me give you a little quiz, and don't answer this out loud. When you look at a picture, who's the first person you look at? (laughs) You're like, I I was a chief, but I know, I know. But if you always think about yourself, now it's human nature to think about yourself, but if you're always thinking about yourself, the word always, you might struggle with pride. Number two, you feel that you're more superior than others just because it's you. You feel like you're more superior. Now, in, in young couples class we were talking about this morning, whenever you have confidence in yourself, it's easy to lead to pride. But whenever you have confidence in God, it leads to faith. Now, think about that. Confidence is not a bad thing. It's just who your confidence is in. Is your confidence in self? Be careful, because that can lead to pride. If your confidence is in God, it leads to faith. And all of us said, ouch, and amen. Number three. You find yourself often correcting others, both in small and big matters. Have you ever met anybody, and don't look at the person next to you, but have you ever met anybody that always corrects everybody all the time? <laughs> You're like, yes. I mean, you may mispronounce a word, you may say something, and they're just like, well, it's like this. Now, it's one thing to correct your kids. It's another thing if you're correcting everybody else. Ouch. All right, number four. You're like, move on, Timothy. This is hard. This is hurting, I know. It hurt me just as bad as it does you right now. Number four, your first reaction is to defend yourself when others try to correct you. And this is something, I'm just being transparent. Your pastor tries to be honest. I never want anyone to put me on a pedestal, so I always tell you many of my flaws. But one of Lori and I's biggest struggle when we got married is when she would try to bring something to me, I would defend myself. Does anybody else do that? Do you know that's a sign of pride if you automatically go to defending yourself? Ouch. (laughs) Number five, and this is hard for us teachers, you like to teach others, but you don't like others teaching you. You might struggle with pride. Number six, you don't think you have that much to change in your life. Have you ever met anybody that just didn't feel like they needed to change anything, that they were all good? You might struggle with pride. And number seven, and everyone said amen since I'm at the last point of this, you see the best in yourself, but you often find yourself seeing the worst in others. So when Paul says you need to go after humility, um, part of the problem that keeps us from humility is pride. And to be honest, this is something I think all of us struggle with at times. And you don't have to be successful to struggle with pride. Sometimes pride is thinking, if I only had my opportunity, I, I would be great and I would be better. It reminds me of that movie Napoleon Dynamite, how Uncle Rico thought if he had just gotten the game, in the 80s, in the fourth quarter, he would have made it big, right? You don't have to be successful to be prideful. Um, so on your outline, I put um, 
an acrostic I found online. I thought it was really good. Pride, P, is pursuant of your own wants and wishes. R is resistant to the ideas of others that contradict your own. I is insistent that our way is right. D is defensive against those who try to help us with their arrogance. And E is we evaluate based upon ourselves. And I want to tell you a story. Half of you have heard this story, half of you haven't. But for the sake of those who haven't, I had to tell the story at least one more time. Um, when I was in seminary, I, I, right before I went to seminary, in, it was in 2005, I worked at Banana Republic in the Asheville Mall. And I remember seeing this really nice jacket. It was this brown, peanut butter brown Italian leather jacket. And as a seminary student, I couldn't afford this Italian leather jacket. But finally, it went on sale. And I had a friend that pitched in some money, and I used my employee discount. Anybody ever worked at the mall and got an employee discount? It's pretty nice. So I had additional discount on it, and I was able to get this really expensive peanut butter brown Italian leather jacket. So I would wear this jacket around like this was back before Lori Day. So I was single. I'm like, man, with this jacket, I'm going to land a date. With this jacket, I'm going to be the man on campus. And I was thinking these thoughts. I wouldn't express it out loud. I don't, I don't think I did. But I came home from school break. I was at seminary at the time, and I was wearing this jacket. And one of my nieces at the time, she was only six or seven, she came up to me, Uncle Timothy. And she reaches out, and I'm like, oh, how sweet. Actually, it wasn't sweet. She had just been eating Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets. And she proceeded to put her greasy hands on my peanut butter brown Italian designer leather jacket. Well, there was a big grease spot on it. And I, was, I went back to Texas, and I'm like, okay. I took it to the dry cleaner. And little did I know that this Italian leather jacket had glue packs throughout it. It was just part of the design. I don't know what it was. I'm not a designer. But they said, sir, we're sorry. Your jacket is ruined. The glue packs under the heat had burst, and it was spots all over the jacket. So my Italian leather jacket was ruined, and I could wear it no longer. Now you know my sob story. So here's the moral of that story. Just a little pride. It really makes things go downhill pretty fast. And I, I want to come up with a, a new motto. And this, this expression comes from a book. I think it was written in the 80s or 90s. Have you ever heard people say, I am second? Some of you may have the bracelets. Do you know actually it's I am third? Because it's God first, others second, and then yourself third. So I'm sorry if you have the I am second bracelet. I didn't want to ruin it for you. But it's, it's God's first, then others are second, and then you're third. And if we could live our lives that way, that would change things. We wouldn't walk in pride anymore. We'd say, you know what? Jesus is first, others are second, and I'm third. So let's hear you say, I am third. All right, good. That's a good confession for the soul. All right, the second thing he gives is meekness. He mentioned lowliness, and we talked about what lowliness is not. But meekness, let me tell you what meekness is not. Meekness is not weakness. A lot of times people think of meekness and they think of weakness. Let me give you, in the original Greek language, the word was used of a horse that is broken. Now, a horse that is broken has the same strength as a horse that's not broken. The difference is one is safe and one is not safe. So a better way to define meekness in our mindset is it's strength under control. So when, when the Bible says you walk in meekness, it doesn't mean people walk over you. It means that you have strength and you have power, but it's under control. Jesus was called meek and lowly in Matthew 11, 28-30. But then you see Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. He was meek, 
but he wasn't weak. Moses was the meekest man in that time, we read in the Old Testament. Yet Moses threw down the law, pun intended, when he had the Ten Commandments and he saw the people walking in idolatry. So meekness is not weakness. So when it says we're meek, it doesn't mean you're weak. It just means you're under the control of the Holy Spirit. It also implies that your emotions are under control. And somebody say, ouch, right? So if I'm meek, I not only have my strength under control, but I have my emotions under control. The third thing he gives of, of this walk of the new character is patience. I'm not going to raise your hand if you're patient. There's very few of us. I like the old King James that says long-suffering. It means that you can suffer long and still hang in there. And it's the idea of, in a church setting, if you're going to keep the unity of a church, we have to be willing to look past people's weaknesses and still love them anyways. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, some churches there's kind of extreme. And one, one extreme is you, you ever been in a church that feel like you're hit upside the head with a Bible and you feel wounded every Sunday and there's no redemption? Or I'm just going to tell them the truth. Anybody have been in church like that? I've been there. And it's not the other extreme where Jesus just wants to love you and hold you and help you. And it's like there's never any truth. The Bible presents alternative. It says we should speak the truth in what? In love. So patience doesn't mean you don't tell someone the truth. It means when you do so, you do it in love. Um, I had a mentor that once recently said, uh, he said, beware of one-sided truth. Beware of one-sided truth. The way a lot of churches get astray is they find a truth in the Bible and it becomes one-sided truth. So God is a God of love, right? But he's also a holy God. He's also a wrathful. We don't want to be under his condemnation. Right, So there's got to be a balance. We've got, there's got to be a balance in the church. The, the way John said it is Jesus was full of grace and truth. You've you got to have both. You can't just have grace without truth because it's not really grace. And you can't have truth without grace. It's grace and truth. The, sec, the last thing he says is bear with one another. That's the spirit of forgiving. And how ardent first is going to stay united and how any local church stays united is we've we got to be quick to forgive one another. Because how many of you know, like in any family, we're going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to say things we shouldn't. Even I, I will say things that may be like, why did Timothy say that to me? But listen, we've got, to, we've got to be forgiving to one another. Because we're human. We're going to make mistakes. So this is something Lori and I had when we were dating. And uh, if you're single, this may be something you can use. But when we were dating... We gave each other permission in advance. Like, listen, you're going to mess up. I already forgive you before you do so. So it was, it was a ministry of grace. I said, Lori, listen, I'm going to blow it. You need to forgive me in advance. And you're going to blow it. And by the way, I already forgive you before you even do so. So it was, it was a community of grace. But guess what? When I messed up, do you think she told me about it? Absolutely. <laughs> and we worked through it. Um, that, that's the way a relationship is. So a new life exhibits itself with a new walk and a new talk. If you are still the same old, same old, how can you claim you have a new life in Christ? And finally, a worthy walk unites even the most diverse Christians, the most diverse followers in Christ. Now, we live in Asheville, which is a place of diversity, wouldn't you say? If you just look on bumper stickers, people are so different. You bring up any issue and people are going to divide. So how can a church 
with people with different political parties, people with different denominational backgrounds, how can we stay united? And I often tell people, people will say, well, Timothy, I come from a Methodist, a Presbyterian, a Pentecostal background. I say, listen, if you believe the Bible and your focus is on Jesus, you're going to be fine here. Because we try not to get on side issues. Whatever the text talks about, that's what we talk about. And it keeps us from going off on side issues. So Paul gives us seven pillars of truth in these verses. And these, these, I don't have time to unpack them all. But these seven pillars are what we should focus on, not the side issues. And a lot of, a lot of times what you think is important isn't really that important. A lot of times the things that are important we don't focus on. So what are, what are the fundamentals that unite us together? What are the pillars of the church? Paul lists seven. The first one is one body of believers. One body of believers. Did you know that you're one family in two locations? Paul says there's a family in heaven and a family on earth. And one day, the two locations are going to be brought to one location. Many of you have heard of Henry Blackaby. He wrote Experiencing God, and uh, God really used him mightily. Well, in the 1970s, uh, God allowed a huge revival to sweep through the western part of Canada. And what had happened is um, there were two deacons in a church, and they were brothers. And they had divided over some issue. They had divided so much the church was split around brother number one and brother number two. And in this church, there were two rows of chairs split by aisle. And everyone that favored deacon number one was on this row. Everyone that favored deacon number two was on this row. And it was split down the middle. The congregation was completely split. And one day, God got a hold of the two deacons, and they realized, you know what? We shouldn't be divisive. We split the church down the middle based upon preferences, and we've got to come together. So they came down to the altar, and they asked God to forgive them, and that whole church was united. And because of that, revival broke out in that western part of Canada in the 70s. Because God pours out his blessings on that which is unified, that which is divided, doesn't receive his blessings. I'll say that again. God pours out his blessing on that which is unified, but that which is divided does not receive his blessings. Let me give you a verse to, to show you that. Psalm 133.1 Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. So when things are united in the name of Jesus, God pours out blessings. When things are divided, Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot what? Cannot stand. So there's one body of believers, there's one Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, it's not a it, he's a he, and the Holy Spirit has come to call us to repentance, and to coach us, and to counsel us. And whenever you become a believer, the Holy Spirit moves inside of you, and he becomes your teacher, he becomes your guide, he becomes the one who encourages you. The third thing we have united is there's one hope of salvation. Aren't you glad that there's only one hope of salvation? There's not two hopes. The apostle said it like this in Acts 4.12. It says, there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus. So the reason why I get passionate about the local church is because Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the hope of the world and the local church is the one who presents that hope to the world. So that's why I always encourage you Make it count. Because if you realize this counts for your neighbor, this counts for the person down your street that's lost, this counts for you, for your own soul, you would change the way you think about going to church. And your attendance would not be occasionally. It would be, I'm, I'm there as much as I'm able to be because 
this counts for eternity. Uh, how many of you are watching March Madness? Anybody? Basketball games? All right. How many of you pull from Carolina? All right. Duke. Any Duke? Okay. Somebody else? All right. A few other teams. So here's the thing. Imagine a sports team. Imagine if only 70% of the team shows up on game day. Do you think they're going to win March Madness if 70% of the team shows up? Most of us say absolutely not. I mean, think about these players. They're injured and they're still trying to play. I mean, they're like bruised rib and they're like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to play to win a game. Now, we are contending for people's souls for eternity. Shouldn't we show up a lot more than we do? This is a lot more important than a game. This is, we're not playing a game. We're contending for the souls of people. So it's game day every day for the local church. Amen. Somebody said amen and someone said ouch. <laughs> All right. And there's only one Lord Jesus Christ. This is the fourth thing. We talked about one body of believers, one Holy Spirit, one hope of salvation. And there's only one Lord Jesus Christ. Believe it or not, there's other Jesuses presented in other religions. That's why we call it a cult. So you're thinking, you know, people ask, well, Timothy, what's the difference between Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or these other? It's, it's how you view Jesus. And if you don't view Jesus as the eternal part of the Godhead, he's the son of God. He's the eternal word. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. If you don't view him as the second person in the Trinity and you don't view him as the one who died for your sins and you receive it's by Jesus only, it's by faith in him only, that's what makes someone a cult. Because salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Amen? So there's only one faith that saves. That's number five. And number six there's one baptism into God's family. And there's different interpretations of this. Some people believe it's referring to water baptism. In the context, I think it's referring to baptism of the Holy Spirit. That whenever you are become a Christian, the Bible says you become baptized into the body of Christ. So whenever someone prays to receive Christ for the very first time, the Holy Spirit makes residence inside his or her home. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is called. Paul says, if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. So if you are saved, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, the Holy Spirit doesn't live within you. He's work, He's knocking on your heart. And finally, number seven, there's one Heavenly Father. We know the Heavenly Father is unchanging. He's the creator and sustainer. He's great. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, unchanging, completely worthy of our praise, and above all, he's holy and he's full of love. So, to, to wrap this up, these six verses talk about the unity of the church. And I don't know about you, but as I read these verses about humility and long-suffering, I was convicted. But the good news is when you're convicted, that's actually a blessing in disguise. Because whenever you ask God to forgive you and to help you, you know what he does? He forgives you and he helps you. So think about it like this. God is working in you. And before God works through you, he typically works in you. So if you want God to do something through you, you've got to first allow God to work in you. And God works both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Amen. So in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. But in all things, we should have love. I'll say that again. In essentials, these seven things we talked about, we need to be united. But in non-essentials, you know, these are, you know, what, what's your view about spiritual gifts? These are what's your view about how church should be run? There's different interpretations. 
But in the essentials, we've got to have unity. But in all things, we've got to show love. So one truth to rethink, if you'll look on your worship guide, a worthy walk backs up a believer's talk. And jokingly, I put on there, live in such a way the preacher's not tempted to lie at your funeral. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. Don't get serious about that one. But basically, you know, you should live in such a way that when God takes you at a young, ripe old age, you know what? They're, I don't have to think, what am I going to say about that person? Because they, they walk the talk. They live the life. So your action step, just to make it practical and simple, pick one area of your character that you're going to ask God to help you with. Is it humility? When I mention the seven, you might struggle with pride. You're like, ouch, for like five of them, you may want to pick that one. Um, and by the way, humility, you have two choices. You can humble yourself or you can allow God to humble you. I wouldn't pick number two. It doesn't work very well. It's better to humble yourself. And how do you humble yourself? You do by serving others. If you serve others, that's one of the antidotes to pride. Because when you're serving others, you're putting their needs ahead. Because you're not second, you're what? You're third. Meekness, are your emotions out of control? Do you need to ask God to reel your emotions in? Patience, is there anybody that you're having struggle with right now that you need to endeavor to, to help them and to be with them? Is there someone that you need to forgive? Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to become who you already are in Christ. Because the Christian life is this. You're not just a human being, you're a human becoming. Becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, all I can say is, ouch. I know this text is very powerful, Lord. And if we really look at the words, uh, we all fall short. So, Father, where we fall short in areas of pride, where we don't walk in humility, where we don't, we don't have our power under control, we, we have our emotions out of control, we're not really meek. We, we're just all over the place. Forgive us. God, where we don't endeavor to keep, not to produce, but to maintain it, the spirit of unity. Uh, forgive us, Lord, or we're divisive, or we're gossip, rumors, whatever it may be. God, all this list we could go through and say, God, forgive us. But God, here's the good news. You give us grace. And God, as we speak the truth, we thank you that we have the love of Jesus. So God, where we fall short and where we struggle, we pray you'd help us. If there be one here that doesn't know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, right where you're at, if you're willing to say, Jesus, I believe in you, that you died for my sins. I'm willing to make you my Lord and Savior. I believe you rose again from the dead. Just say a prayer in your, in your own heart like this. Jesus, I went far too long without you in my life. I believe that you are God and that you died for me and you rose again. I pray that you would forgive me of my sins. That you would step out of heaven and settle, dwell into my heart. I make you my Lord and Savior. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. We love you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time we're going to have the hymn of invitation. If you have any decision you'd like to make, or if you just simply need prayer, Adam and I will be at the front to pray with you. If you'll please stand.
Amen. You guys may be seated. Thank you, Elaine, Stephen, and choir. Wasn't that great music this morning? Amen. This time we're going to continue in our giving by taking up our tithes and offerings. And I just want to thank you guys for your generosity. It's amazing that when you give your heart to Jesus, He has every part of you. And when you, whatever you give to Him, you know what, you can't outgive God. He's a generous God. So thank you for your generosity and what you're doing in this church. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you so much for the lives that you're changing. God, the greatest thing we can witness this side of eternity is a changed life. And God, you're changing us each and every day. And Lord, I just pray you continue to do so. Thank you, Lord, the ardent First Baptist is striving to be a place of grace and truth. Help us to endeavor to keep that balance. And God, as we've talked about today, keep the unity in this church. Only the Holy Spirit can create unity, but it's our job to maintain it. So I pray that we would do that. Bless these gifts and may it be used for the furtherance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.